20 Schemes is the church planting ministry of Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland and Redeemer Fellowship Church in Bardstown, Kentucky. I'm Mez McConnell and this is the 20 Schemes podcast. Nice one. We're here today with Johnny Prime and Andy Patterson. I'm not going to tell you what they do because I don't know. So I'm going to ask them, what do you do? Andy, what, what's your job now? Because you've changed, right? Yeah, I was mission director for FIC. For, right. um, well, I still am, but working at it 50%. For the last five months, I've been working also as an associate pastor at Charlotte Chapel as their, what they call their go pastor, pastor with responsibility for evangelism. Right. And so, yeah, so for those who don't know, Charlotte Chapel originally supplied most of the money to rebuild Nidri back in the day. Must be about 15 or 20 years ago now, maybe a bit longer than that. So people know who Charlotte Chapel are. Johnny P, what do you do? Right. Well, I've been working for the FIC for almost a year. Um, I'm the pastoral ministries director, so when people ask me what that is, I basically say my biggest job is being a pastor to pastors. Um, before that, I was a pastor for 24 years in North London. I, I grew up in Edinburgh, though. So, so a pastor, is... pastor to pastor. So what is there some sort of hotline that pastors ring up and ask for Johnny P? Is it? Um, it doesn't quite work like that. There's two elements to it. So one one side of it is that. I try to proactively meet up with pastors. We organize um, local pastors conferences just to try and connect folk together, encourage them, keep going, persevere, but with a gospel outlook. Um, there's lots of guys who give up, so we're trying to proactively get in there before prevention's better than cure. Right. But the reality I've discovered is that there's a massive reactive job to be done. Um, so in reality, uh, folk do phone the FIEC, because there's a crisis and those phone calls come through to me. So whether it's guys who are knackered and just want to throw in the towel, um, guys who are facing kind of power struggles in church, which I'm amazed how often that's happened in the last year. Yeah, I'm not. Um, and then um, guys who have failed morally. So even in you know the last few months, oh, a number yeah. of guys who have, have, have been secretly living a double life and it's all come to light and then the impact of that on the church is right, their families. Hold that thought. John, remind me to come back to the moral question about yeah. pastors who fail morally. But I just want to ask you a question because Prime is obviously quite a famous name here in Scotland. So what's it like being sort of related to uh, the renowned sort of preacher, pastor, author, um, sort of living legend that is Andy Prime? <laughs> well, I think the funny thing is, I keep being asked, are you Andy's dad? <laughs> and I'm not Andy's dad. I'm Andy's uncle, and Andy did work with us for four years in, in Enfield. In so North give London. us the dirt on Andy. What, tell us a funny um, story. He's the first nappy I ever changed. Is he? Um, his mum and dad left me. It was the day, I can remember it, it was the day the Lockerbie bombing happened. Wow. And I was left to look after Andy. And I was told, it's all right, he's done a big one today. You won't have to worry, he's already <laughs> asleep in bed. And within five minutes, he exploded in his nappy. And I'd never changed a nappy before. Listen, folks, you hear it here first. <laughs> so, um, Andy Prime was a nappy bomber. Um, so, yeah. So, no, Andy, I mean, the other funny thing about Andy, am I allowed to say this, is that when he worked... In say Enfield, whatever you like about Andy. <laughs> when, he, when he worked with us in Enfield, um, he really didn't like reading. And uh, I made him do some study. He used to come to my house on a Thursday and Friday morning at nine o'clock. And I'd sit him down in our front room with his books and he'd have to study, do this correspondence course. And I used to hear the door slam at 11 o'clock because he left. Because mm. basically on the dot of two hours, he'd be out the door. And then all of a sudden, he discovered that the Bible came alive to him. 
he discovered that he had a gift in speaking, preaching the Bible, and all of a sudden books became something he wanted to read rather mm -hmm. than something he hated. But before then, he hated anything to do with study or books. Or I mean, he's got a gift in reading the Bible, but I'll tell you what he hasn't got a gift in, and that is replying to his texts. No, we won't go there. No? No. I've just gone there. Come on. No. Affirm. I love my nephew. He is, he is, he is absolutely a nightmare. Text Andy. Text us back, sir. Right, let's move on. Um, let me go back to his moral question, because why well, you've just said it. Yeah. So a friend of mine from Brazil, actually, has been a pastor a long time, has just, uh, about five or six years ago, committed adultery with a member of his congregation. And um, the church decided, his denomination as well, decided to remove him from the pulpit for six months. And his wife forgave him, et cetera, et cetera. And then they put him back in the pulpit after six months. I can debate the rights or wrongs of that in a minute. And then um, just heard a few few weeks ago now, maybe a month ago now, he has done almost exactly the same thing again. Except this time, he's refusing to tell his church or his denomination because he thinks, again, his wife's forgiven him and therefore so has the Lord. What would you do in that situation? Because he's asking me for advice and I, I know what my advice is, but... Yeah, I, we've had similar situations yeah. and I've always said to the guy, you're out. Um, You've disqualified yourself. I think some of the qualifications that we have for elders written down are above reproach, which doesn't mean you're perfect, but it yeah. means that there must be at least some sense of publicly out there, folks aren't going to be able to raise things before you. And if your job is to handle the word of God and to lead by example, you disqualify yourself when you fall into serious publics. And now we all sin, we all screw up, we all make mistakes, but I think there is an aspect of public sin that does disqualify you for ministry. And I remember a book I read called The Stain That Stays uh, some time back, which was picking up on this and, and really warning guys, you've got to be serious because it's your character. It's what you, it's who you are, yeah. as much as what you preach that is absolutely vital for your ministry. It's, it, it's, it's character, even above teaching ability. Yeah, what do you think, Johnny? I think uh, I, I'm of the same opinion. I, there's definitely forgiveness and there's restoration. Um, but, um, and it doesn't mean that usefulness is removed, but I think it's very hard to think how you would, you could still continue in pastoral leadership doing that. Now, having said that, um, you know, even in my Bible reading this morning, you, you read of these kings of, of Judah or whatever, and they cast as good guys, but they had loads of wives. David had loads of wives. Solomon had loads of wives. And you kind of go, well, how does this all work? And yet you think of how David sinned with Bathsheba and God forgave him, but then actually God said, but there's consequences to this. So David is forgiven, but he still has to live with the consequences of what he did that actually affected the rest of his reign. Um, he couldn't step down from being king because he was king. You know, that's a different thing from being a pastor. That's not analogous to being a pastor. I, and I would want to say to a guy, as I said even the, this last week, that, hey, the important thing is that there's genuine repentance. Genuine repentance will lead to fruit. Um, my, my worry about the story you've told is that our hearts are very deceitful. And so what we can think is godly sorrow is actually a worldly sorrow. So in other words, worldly sorrow is, oh, woe is me, I've made a mess. It's affected, let's say with a pastor, it's mm -hmm. affected my life, it's affected my family, it's affected my ministry. Okay, I'm forgiven, I can go back to all of that now. But therefore, 
was there really time for fruit of repentance to be seen? Mm -hmm. So I've said to some guys recently, and one guy, um, without giving anyway any secrets at all, what's encouraged me is that um, he has stepped down from ministry because of something that happened in the past that had been hidden, but has, uh, then came to light. Um, he has submitted to the elders of the local church. He stayed in the local church, but said, I'm not going to go back into ministry. But he is also looking for a way in which he can still do something that is, if you like, using some of the gifts and abilities he's given, but while recognizing that ministry is no longer for him. So it's not that you're a write-off, because God doesn't do write-offs. If he did, we'd all be written off. Um, but probably in terms of leading a local church, um, it would seem to me that we have to take this really seriously. The pastors' network in the FIC, actually, the way it's been drawn up says that moral failure of a sexual kind um, in terms of adultery um, would would it disqualify you from ministry. I mean, who's responsible in this scenario for... My advice has been, he's, I found out the information through a friend of his who's another pastor of a different denomination. And my advice was to that guy is, I think you've, you've probably got a responsibility to inform either his church or his denomination. Would you agree or disagree? Oh, totally. I think hidden sin will eventually come out. Um, so, you know, Proverbs talks about covering up your sin and that, that's never a good thing. Hey, it's great his wife knows, but because he's, you know, if he hasn't told his elders, for example, yeah. so I think that in a local church context, um, the relationship of a pastor to his fellow elders really matters. Yeah. And so anything like that has to be disclosed. So if someone came to me and said, oh, this is, you know, this has happened, I would say, have you told your elders? I mean, I'd say, have you told your wife first? But have yeah. you then told the elders? Because they've got to, so a, a pastor isn't above the discipline of his fellow elders. Yeah. So he's got to submit to what his local church would say. Yeah. Andy, is there a way bad. back for a pastor who's committed that kind of sin, back into the ministry? Not in, I, well, personally, yeah. I don't think it's public ministry because it, it, it stays. You always know there are some guys who've done remarkable things for God, who've mm -hmm. written remarkable books, but they've mm -hmm. fallen into sin. And then when you talk about them, you go, yeah, he's the guy mm -hmm. who 25 years ago had an affair. It stays with you. You're not above reproach. And I, okay. I would completely go with what Johnny is saying, that there are ways that uh, there can still be usefulness in the kingdom of God. But I'm, I'm making a distinction here with public ministry. Well, let me t tell you something we did here then, mm -hmm. which is the opposite of that. We can discuss it. So we had a guy who was, and it's, we can talk about it because it's public. His testimony is public. There's nothing here. There's, there's, it's not problematic, and I, I won't mention his name, but just so you, so you understand, um, I'm not hanging anybody out to dry. So we had a, a brother here who, um, probably about 35, 30, 30 odd years ago, was the assistant pastor here of the old. It was the mission, and it wasn't yeah. the church. And he had an affair with, um, obviously, with a lady, and that resulted in a child as well. Um, his wife stuck with him, um, etc. Uh, he obviously was removed from the position here at the time and uh, was away for the Lord for 20 odd years. Yeah. So continued to live in the area, just never went near a church again. He's a, you know, work full time, raised his kids, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, put it all behind him. And then a few years into my, I've been here 12 years, a couple of years into my time here, 
he turned up with his wife at uh, a carol service or something mm -hmm. and was really moved by it. Came to speak to me at my house, actually, because he's a local guy. Speak to me, said, look, tell me your story. And I said, look, I think you've got to come back in from the wilderness here. Mm -hmm. um, he obviously confessed his sin, um, trusted in Christ. What he would say now was probably for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough. Yeah. Uh, and a guy, again, he was in his 60s, very quickly was became a real, uh, obviously a godly pastoral guy, just full and full of wisdom. And I've got a very young church. Almost everybody of a certain age knew him and mm -hmm. his situation. Anyway, he became a deacon, and then latterly, for the last five years or so, has been an elder, or he's just stepped down. And in, in the discussion in the eldership that we had, all these you can imagine the discussion yeah. that went yeah. around the yeah. staying that stays on, and, and all this stuff. Um, but we decided that, um, uh, and the congregation voted for him uh, to come into pastoral office. And while I agree, I understand, it, you know, people say that's the guy who had this, that and the other. On the other hand, I think a great encouragement to a lot of our messed up people here was, yeah. here's a guy not only mm. restored yeah. to Christ and in the church, but actually right. could and, and he's actually, now an elder in our church yeah. and he's but he's open about it. And and I think my point is, Mez, there that, again, we... Also, we it's right every time. No, no, sure. the point is, we actually trust the independency of local church. Yeah. So that's why we believe in elder-led congregations. And I would reckon that these kind of situations you've described, there is that sense you have to bring every situation before the Lord as elders. Yeah, you yeah. have to say what's true. Yeah. So you first find out what's true. So that includes what happened, mm -hmm. what fruit of repentance has there been. You know, the guy might not have, God knows, yeah, yeah, yeah. was he truly converted at the time yeah. this all happened or not? You know, it's we live in a very messed up world. Yeah. And then, then you have to say, okay, what is the right thing in these circumstances for this local church? Yeah. And so... Um, I've never been a fan of what I call position statements on things. So in Enfield, we never had a position statement on divorce, for example, because then we become new Pharisees. You know, mm -hmm. we kind of add to Scripture and say, oh, this is our position on X, Y, Z, mm -hmm. often on things that believers will differ on. So like, should an elder become an elder again if mm -hmm. he's had a, a moral sexual failure mm -hmm. um, in terms of committing adultery or whatever? Well... I think actually there's a sense in which every local church has to examine that before God. And it can then be a Romans 14 thing where people will come to different conclusions mm -hmm. because the exact facts are different. Does, does that uh, make yeah, sense? We don't want to lower the bar either. No, we don't want to lower the bar. So you've got to have a really high bar yeah. as to what is morally yeah. right, as scripture does. But actually every situation is different. There might be a difference too between saying someone's going to be the man who is the main teacher of a church mm -hmm. and someone who's going to be one of the elders of a church. I, I also think lots of the folk that we encounter now, you know, life is messy. You go to Corinth, life is messy. You know, we're, we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified, 1 mm -hmm. Corinthians 6, from our messed up world. So, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I would just Sorry. maybe vary slightly. I think there is value in position papers. And why I think there's value in position papers is because personality comes into it. So you get someone, yeah. and here's the position. And, and what are you judging them by? So often you actually could judge them by personality. They're a, they're a good mate. 
So therefore, we're going to act in this particular way. It must oh, be yeah. the word of God that constantly mm -hmm. guides us. And at least in the position paper, articulate what is what you think is the basic biblical mm -hmm. principles mm -hmm. that are at play here. But so, there's only really principles and rules, you see. Yeah, but you hear what I'm saying. I do. The, the I do. Light, isn't it? The but the danger is that if we become personality-driven, we... We don't want we're a situational ethics scenario. No, we're we? all agreed yeah. that the word of God must be at the very heart Correct. of what we do and interpreted. But that's why fairly. what is so so principle I was taught, armour of God, the belt of truth has to be put on before the breastplate of righteousness. So you have to say what's true. So you ask what's true in terms of scripture, what's true in terms of the circumstances. I think the reality of sin is often it's all hidden under the carpet. So invariably, if someone's come to see me about some, you know, whether it's a pastor or a member of the congregation about something that's happened, you tend to only get a little bit of the story mm -hmm. and then something else comes out and then something else comes out. It's not a quick fix, this. So the story you've told is actually a quite unique story. You know, a guy who... I mean, everyone is unique, isn't it? Well, they are. But so... Would, it, he have not, would, it, would, it, would you have considered him for eldership in your, your churches? You don't have to say yeah, by the way. I is think the answer is I don't know. Okay. Because I think... Yeah, I just don't know the answer to that. Andy? The danger of something like this that goes more public is that people hear it and there is a confidentiality that often we as pastors yeah, yeah, yeah. feel is right and appropriate. So we certainly had a situation in, in my early years in, in pastoring um, church in Bristol where there was someone who was very dear, very precious, went and served God in a particular context and and fell into this sin had to come back to this country was put under the discipline of the church and that was incredibly painful it was a time of massive tears and we surrounded them with lots of of love but we were saying you we you've got to make sure the repentance is genuine because at times is it i've you know i've screwed up here uh, uh you know no let, let's see if it, it really is god generated and that requires a period of time to see that right. i think but humility to go under the discipline of the church, and then the usefulness of that person taking that situation and being able to look at it through the lens of scripture and saying, actually, yeah, I've screwed up, but God is faithful and true. And I want to use, I want to glorify him through this. So I think that situation will vary from, uh, from situation. And the guy that I'm thinking of mm -hmm. is greatly used in home groups, mm -hmm. ministry, he has preached more recently and brings a weight to what he, says on these occasional instances that can be far more powerful than those who haven't really had to engage with, with that issue. So it is dependent on the individual and the situation, but what I'm arguing for is let's keep let's make sure we understand what the scripture says and we don't play a beauty pageant with whoever's in front of yeah, us. Yeah, I don't think we're saying that though, are we? I think that. we are. I, think we're the same I don't place. think anyone's saying that, right? No, no, no. Well, I'm just saying well, avoid personality um, and avoid strong leaderships which are not accountable to each other. Um, so a guy, let's just say, I, want to, I wasn't going to have this conversation, it's just because you said something. This is, see, this is why I like this yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think we're all agreed. Someone is, mm. they're immediately disqualified. It's as simple as that, for, particularly for, for me, it's public sexual unrepentance. That's right. And it can be other serious issues. If the guy's a control freak, and there's, there's all, there's, yeah, yeah. we can get all into the all thing, sorts all sorts of things. But regardless of that, so let's say, right, then he submits. He's saying, right, no, I'm going to submit to the eldership, I'm going to step down become a member, does he then become a non-active member? What I mean by that is lots of sort of more middle-class churches where they're gathered in churches, people come on a Sunday and they sort of leave and they do their bits and bobs and that's easy. But in our communities, there's a tight team, everybody's doing lots of different ministries. We just say to that person, look, your only responsibility is you just sit under the words, 
and become a member. You don't get involved in, well, you don't run house groups, you don't get involved in any other type of ministry or pastorally counseling people or... What, I, I what, what are some of the, I know we can't yeah. write a list. I'm no, just saying, no, how think, restrictive can we be? I think, I think my be? principle would be that anyone in that kind of situation, so I can think of a, um, uh, something that happened in the church I was in in Enfield um, and uh, the, the guy involved, we made sure that he was meeting with someone regularly to read the Bible and to pray, to have some honest questions asked of him. Mm-hmm. That took a long time to really yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, work through with him what repentance really meant. Um, I think it was probably painful for him, but there was also other hidden things that came to light and we had to deal with it. The joy for me when I left Enfield was that um, that guy now is regularly involved in, in one of the, the, the youth groups, um, he, yeah, okay. he, he, he's the sort of guy who is getting on with being a Christian, massively supportive of the ministry, you know, witnesses at work, brings folk to things that are put on by the church. So, you know, that was a long time that took, but there was a, there was a genuine expression of repentance. It was one of those situations where there was a baby involved, therefore yeah. it was brought before the church, you know, the church forgave and the whole church family was actually involved in restoring him and the woman who then became his wife. Yeah, as per. D- does that make sense? Bible, so in yeah. other words, it's something you're working through. But right, I want to I want to move on. Please do. Because I've trapped you in here for 20 minutes and I haven't even asked any of the questions I wanted to ask. But so you may or may not be aware I'm currently researching for a book that I'm going to yeah. write on the state of UK Christianity amongst uh, the UK's housing estates, council estates, housing schemes, um, which FIC is uh, substantially helping us to fund that research. Um, I'm not doing it personally, by the way. I've got some PhD boffin whose PhD thesis is in research. So okay. praise the Lord for So it's written like by that. Mes McConnell with... Yeah, yeah. yeah well, he's okay. just the research dude. Before I want to get my ducks in a row before... Yeah. Because one of the things that... It's interesting to me, as I've read pretty much every single book there is to read on church planting, on um, social and geographical demographics in the UK, there's very little that's been published around this, this sort of topic since Urban Harvest, mm. whatever you think about it or not, because I noticed Brilliant. that you sort of grimaced. No, love it. Oh, you like it. Most influ- one of the most influential books Yeah, in and life. so I read Urban Harvest. It's very old-fashioned now for us. It's got to be 30 years old, right? Yeah, it's early 80s. Yeah. Um, certainly before I was a Christian read it and I thought well, this is fascinating once you pick aside all the sort of every book dates uh, it's actually really quite good um, and so I think this it's time we had a basically some updated version but you obviously hadn't heard of the book Johnny and you just started reading it any initial thoughts on Urban Harvest um, you're not far enough through to me I, I'm probably not far enough through it I, I am I am finding it massively helpful because it's ringing bells. So having read the um, uh, Poverty Safari book recently Poverty as well, Safari is a very different book. <laughs> it's a very different book, but the point is it is touching on the same kind of issues. It, it's yeah. highlighting the same truths that are going on. Um, I think I found it challenging. I found it exposing of the way my mindset probably needs to change. Um, and yet it also harmonizes with things I've experienced um, in seeking to, um, I haven't planted a church in a deprived area, mm-hmm. but I've had guys who were working with me who then we supported in doing that uh, in in North London, and uh, loads of the issues are 
exactly the issues that we've been seeking to address. I, I think that key to everything, it seems to me, is that it, it's all about actually going to be where people are and you have to then get to know that community if then you are to share Jesus with that community. So it's a long-term project. It's not short-term. There's not a short-term fix for our, mm. whether it's council estates, schemes, mm -hmm. however you want to describe them. And I think they vary throughout the country. But um, the whole idea is we believe that a church is a community of the people of the Lord Jesus who live within a community to draw that community to the Lord Jesus. That's what church is. And sadly, there's loads of... Um, uh, there's loads of communities that don't have communities of God's people among them. Mm -hmm. Or what seems to be true in terms of our kind of churches, there were churches that were planted many years ago in some of these areas. But what's happened is that folk who now go to those churches all live outside the area and they kind of bus in for mm -hmm. Sunday and they go home again and there's no real sense of a community within a community that's reaching that community. Now, that's a, that's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I really accept that. But um, I think when I write the book, I'm going to look at all the variants yeah. of that because there are various reasons. Even geographical yeah. boundaries have changed over the years. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, in, in, yeah. I, I only know London, OK, because that's where I've been for 24 years. Yeah. But things like railway lines, main roads, they make distinct little communities. Yeah. and what we discovered in London is that London is made up basically of loads and loads of villages. Yeah. And you've got to basically, if you're going to reach that village, you've got to go and be in that village to reach that village because yeah. people don't leave these areas. But what our research has shown in London is London is pretty much a country on its own. Yeah. No, I so you do. almost have to, we're almost having to, um, You've almost got, we've got England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and London. I think you're right. And, and the weird thing about London is, so Enfield, where I was, right, is 340,000 people, which yeah. is the size of a city. But the weird thing it's about... this one. Yeah, but the weird thing about Enfield as a borough is, one, um, it doesn't have a centre. So right. it's the size of a city, but it doesn't work like a city. Hmm. Do, do you see what I mean? Oh, so Edinburgh... Yeah. There's, there's definitely a central point where yeah, people yeah. go to. There's nothing like that. So it's this massive blob of humanity, but actually people will work in central London, for example, and travel in, but folk could live in one part of Enfield and only be three miles from another part and never go to that other part. Yeah. So you can't, and in Enfield, the trouble again with Enfield is, just to talk about one of my favorite subjects, is that compared, say, to Edinburgh, you know, when I went, there was the church I was pastor of, which is a Bible church, in the posh bit, which is on the west, there are three good Anglican evangelical churches. But as you go further east, it gets poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer. It's all the old industrial area mm -hmm. of London. Um, it's also massively diverse in terms of ethnicity, but there's no Bible churches there at all. Mm -hmm. Well, there are, there are two now, <laughs> but there weren't any. Yeah. And, and no one was doing anything or thinking about the gospel there at all, really. Yeah. Uh, and so the challenge is very... I'll tell you what surprised different. me so far in the research, and we're only a few months into yeah. it, is that the areas of greatest deprivation and the least evangelised in the UK right now are coastal towns. I was I couldn't believe that. Well, I, I I'm like, not surprised. I Maybe I just don't know what no, well, doing, but I, I was fascinated I, by that. 
South I've been, Coast is where uh, traditionally you find all the evangelicals retire to. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. but but only. I'm, only I'm talking about going up north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. North Yorkshire, for example. Yeah. So I've been to places in my new role that I've never been to before. Yeah. And one of the places is North Yorkshire, and there are these mm. massive um, areas full of people, and. The trouble is they're not places people move to. No. So they're not places you're going to get a young guy saying, I'm going to go and do gospel work there. But we desperately need to go there yeah. because otherwise these people aren't going to hear about the Lord Jesus. Yeah. That's like and Middlesbrough, right? Middlesbrough is no exactly like there. that. Mm. And, and the difference with Middlesbrough, I think, with Edinburgh is in Edinburgh you've got Edinburgh as a city, you've got yeah, Edinburgh yeah, as a yeah. popular university kind of place with its yeah. three universities at least yeah. now, no, four universities now, isn't it? Um, uh, you've also got stuff that guys can go and work after university and then say, hey, but I'll get stuck in the Nidri or Grace Mount yeah, yeah, or yeah. wherever it is. Middlesbrough, people aren't just moving there. You're not going to get yeah, yeah. Christians the moving there. Aren't there. there aren't jobs. And how do we, I guess one of my prayers is, how could we, if you like, put somewhere like Middlesbrough on the map amongst some of our other churches, so guys who are at university in in London mm -hmm. or wherever it is, and try to say, well, why don't you go and deliberately go and get a job in a Middlesbrough hospital or a Middlesbrough school? Because they don't want to, bud. I know they don't, but then it's sacrifice. It's as much a mission. Idol of comfort. I agree with you. And this whole obsession with moving up and out and yeah. getting a, on the property ladder and getting a bigger house. And when, when I was a kid, a better car. when I was growing up in Charlotte Chapel, and you had these, you, we often heard talks which were very challenging about being willing to sacrifice all for Jesus. You know, are you willing to take up your cross and follow him? I wonder if we, we've soft-pedaled that in recent years in, in church. Uh, and, uh, and the same commitment that was called for Foucault to go to Africa or South America or whatever, which we still need folk to do, but actually the cost of, say, moving to Middlesbrough, moving to Bridlington, moving to Stockton, all I, these listen, kind of I places. Think, I think lots of Christians are more in love with the challenge yeah. than they are with the fact that they need to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. They love the way they go, oh, I feel really challenged, and then they feel all spiritual about it, and then that's it, it's gone. Listen, we're going to have to go, because I've got a lecture to do in about five minutes. But So I've got a, we've got young men, we're a young movement now, um, you know, we've got six churches across five cities. Probably we'll double that in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, a lot of momentum behind us. Um, and just as two men with skin in me, I've been a pastor 20 years. You've been a pastor for? 40. 40. 25. So what, there's nearly eight, five years experience in the room. Just um, can you give us a couple of minutes advice? for our young pups, some not so young, but young pups going out into the, into the ministry in some of these communities. I'll start with you first, just because you've got the more, most, you've got most, more experience than us two practically put together. But just for these young guys, we've already mentioned character, we emphasize that a lot here, but what advice would you give to these young families going out into um, housing estates and other things to, to plant churches or revitalize churches? I think the only thing that keeps you going is love for Jesus and love for his people. Yeah. And if there's stuff that's going to rob you of that, as there will be, because Satan's incredibly subtle and there'll be many things that will draw us away. And I think, for example, one of the things that Roy Jocelyn in the aforementioned book talks about is that whole social lifting. 
there's going to be massive discouragements because people, you're going to see them saved and then they are going to leave your church and they're going to leave the community in which they find themselves. The only thing that's going to keep you going is that you've kept your heart soft and tender before Christ, that you're going to make sure you have lots of time. Now, this is, you know, I, this ain't rocket science, but to keep loving Jesus and to pretend that there are strategies or conferences that I need to go to if I'm to be a successful church planter or whatever is, is absolute rubbish. What matters most is that you know Jesus, you love Jesus, and you share Jesus with people and you work in his time with a tender and humble and teachable spirit. And God, by his grace, may give you some fruit uh, along the way. Pray that he does because it's that sort of people that he chooses to bless and will use. But ultimately, it's keep yourself in love with Jesus and keep yourself accountable and connected to others because we actually do need others to just keep coming alongside us, helping us, uh, keep pushing us along on the journey. Cool. I, I would agree with all of that. I think I want to always encourage guys that they need to think about is the long haul. Mm. So it is the marathon, not the sprint. So if you're going to embed yourself in a community, it takes quite a long time to do that. I, and it's almost as though you have to go through a period where it just is tough, um, mm. where you're just, you feel as though you're grinding through, which is where our daily relationship with the Lord Jesus matters. Mm. I think I'd also say you constantly got to be saying who is the Lord put around me that I can invest in who will serve the Lord Jesus with me so I think there's a lot of guys who tend to be lone rangers and yet you actually have to do what you're doing here Mez is mm -hmm. saying who, how can I bring other guys on board to share this heart this passion mm -hmm. you have to share your life with them you have to share your passion with them and then they are the guys who help you to move out I think another thing I'd want to say to guys who are in existing churches who may not be in deprived areas, but everyone who's in a, let's say, a very typical middle-class suburban area, there will be a deprived area next door to it in some way. And actually, my, my feeling would be we should, we've got to encourage guys to say they're your responsibility as well. So you should be praying as a church family, getting the church to pray and think about how can we reach them? How can we reach them? So our aim isn't to build lots of, as it were, mega churches, but actually to um, constantly be saying, where's the other place where we could be sending a group, you know, train a young man up, he gets a group of the congregation, and then they go and say, let's move into that area in order to be a community of God's people in an area where there isn't a community of God's people. So there's not one way to do it, but you're, you constantly want folk to be thinking, how can okay. we be moving where Jesus right. doesn't know? That's it. We're going to finish, John. But one last serious question before we go, and then that's it. And it's just a quick answer. So, John Stevens, John Piper, who wins in an arm wrestle? In an arm wrestle? Yeah. Uh, I think Piper would probably win in an wow. arm wrestle. No, I'd go for Big Bad John, because leverage. Okay. Leverage. Yeah, I think... I think Piper will do him. He's yeah, got that sort so. of. He's got that sort of. I think John would. John Stevens would. Holy Spirit-filled power in his. John, John Stevens would probably refuse to. I think, I think John Stevens would refuse to arm wrestle. He would, and um, that's, yeah, that's physical point. contact. And John, yeah, and John, and John do would do it. Contact. John Piper would do it joyfully. <laughs> Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. With these conversations, we're trying to expose some of the issues we experience in our ministries. 
We hope that with honest and frank conversations, we can begin to open up on some of the hard realities of church planting and revitalization in schemes and council estates around the UK. In fact, even around the world. In this spirit, these conversations will be published completely uncut.